Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Johnny, and welcome to episode 14 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. Today's episode is with Sam Marks and Jonathan Preston, who is a real estate investor in Australia, and they have a really, really great conversation about investing in real estate in places like Australia for our non-US friends, as well as the pitfalls of real estate investing in Thailand. So Sam really, really opens up and he kind of shares his journey of navigating the complicated uh, investment kind of strategies and and laws and, and rules of a foreigner investing in Thailand. And just to kind of give you guys a hint, it's not easy. Uh, foreigners are not really allowed to own land. There's a lot of you know things to juggle. Uh, so I'm very, very happy that Sam has done the work for us because this is something I'm personally not interested in navigating because it's so difficult. And you're going to hear uh, in this interview why it's so much harder to invest in Thailand if you are not Thai and probably a lot of reasons why you might not want, not want to do it. Uh, on the flip side, you can kind of hear Jonathan talk about how easy it is to invest in in Australia. And what I really like about it is the fact that with real estate investing, with some other uh, types of investments, you can leverage. And that is one something that they're going to talk about that is really exciting to me personally. So even if you're not interested in in, uh, buying property in Australia or in Thailand, I think you can all learn a ton from this episode. So take a listen. Hi, guys. Welcome back to another episode of Invest Like a Boss. I'm joined today with John. Jonathan Preston, my buddy we call JP, who's a private real estate investor and also the host of the Australian Property Podcast. JP, welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, definitely, dude. We're excited. I thought we'd have a little general chat, just a casual chat about your experience in investing in Australia and then a little bit about my experience in Thailand. Mm -hmm. And I'd really like to hear your story about how you got started. I mean, you're a young guy, you're 29, I've done really well. Maybe you can just take us back through a little of your background and how you got started as a property investor yeah for sure so i guess when i was uh you know a bit younger i um always wanted to be financially free and you know i started to research a number of ways that you know i could do that and i guess one of the things that stood out to me was that if i was to build some kind of portfolio of investments that you know through capital gains and through the the income you know the assets would derive i'd eventually be able to be financially free and so i spent kind of a few years you know studying the couple of you know different ways you can do it and I did spend quite a lot of time uh, in terms of shares and sort of that side of things. Mm -hmm. But initially, my concerns were around, you know, I needed to use uh, leverage to basically get, you know, fast track results, if you will. And here in Australia, we can actually borrow a huge amount against like shares and Forex, like up to 100 to 1, even even 400 to 1 for Forex. So you can leverage your money, you know, hugely. And so I spent quite a bit of time in that space initially before I kind of realized that it was too close to gambling. And uh, <laughs> and so you couldn't really uh, sustainably make money over the long term, or at least that's what I found. And then I sort of went back to normal share investing and was investing in generally small caps, stuff like that. But established kind of companies, not really like wildly speculative place, made a bit of money in that and was just trying to save a little bit of money on the side. And then I I thought, you know what, I always wanted to own a property. So I took some of those funds out and I bought a positively geared property, 
which was what got me started. That was at the end of 2012. Okay. Basically, with that one, the yield on it was over 7%. Um, so that's like the, the rental return as opposed, you know, as compared to the purchase price. Mm-hmm. And I was able to fund it with a mortgage in the low 5% range. I did put up 15% of the purchase price, but basically it paid for itself from day one. Right. So the idea was that, you know, I was going to be able to, to hold it and uh, almost certainly make gains off it over some time. Yeah. So the idea was you're, you could make 7% as long as it was a house or it was a... It's a two bedroom apartment okay. um, and it's about half an hour from Sydney CBD, which in Sydney terms is not very far away. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's as long as it's rented, it's yielding 7% and you could get the loan at 5%. So it's paying off the mortgage and then a little bit extra. Exactly. I did have it on interest only, so mm-hmm. I wasn't respectively uh, actually paying off the mortgage, but you know, I would benefit from capital gains uh, on top of yeah. you know, paying off the mortgage, or right. basically paying the interest on the mortgage, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back to one thing you, you mentioned earlier, and you're giving us some background, you said in Australia, you can borrow pretty heavily against shares. So th- that means like if you if you own stocks or bonds, and you had those like in through some type of brokerage for- firm, you could get a loan against the those, that equity is that correct or something else? Similar to that, it's actually structured uh, more like a gambling product. Mm-hmm. So it, they're called contracts for difference, and it's uh, you don't actually own the underlying. You just take out like a position against the the broker that offers this, mm-hmm. and uh, they will allow you to uh, get the same benefits of the stock's movement, but you're only putting down a small fraction of the of the price. Mm-hmm. Now. You do have to pay interest, however, on the total borrowings. And if it moves against you by, you know, the amount that you've put down, like as a deposit, then you get wiped out. And you can even go into a negative position as well and end up owing them money if the mm. stock gaps or something like that. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. So it's interesting here you say that that you can almost definitely make the gains in terms of in terms of capital gains down the road when the property increases. And we had two about two weeks ago, we had Ben Miller, who's the CEO of Fundrise on the show. And he was saying the same thing. He's like, all the, all the money is made in in the sale and the capital gains. And it's hard for people that I know that I went to school with. So I'm 31. And almost everyone I know that's invested in property has lost because in, at least in the US, we've had so many ups and downs in the markets over the last decade and and going back even like to 15 years that, Mm -hmm. you know, with with people that I know that put kind of the only money that they had into a property, it's hard for them to stomach the the swings of the market, right? We had the 2001 collapse and then we had the 2008 collapse. So people have been typically getting in at the the wrong times and and then getting out at the wrong times as well. So I know a lot Mm -hmm. of people that have unfortunately lost money in the the property markets. How's how's, uh, Australia's market been? I think you guys were almost like recession proof in 2008. Pretty much. It's been uh, very strong, almost scarily strong. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got a lot of people right now, particularly uh, some like American economists coming along and saying like, hey, you know, you guys are overpriced, you're due for, you know, very much due for a correction, mm-hmm. um, everything like this. So, you know, there's kind of like almost a cult following on the other side now where people are saying like, there's an impending crash, everything like that. But statistics and everything indicate that most people are well ahead on their mortgage. Mm-hmm. In terms of mortgage assessment rates, you're not assessed at the actual repayment of your mortgage, you're assessed significantly higher as to whether you can make the repayments and that's to buffer for when rates go back up. Gotcha. So right now, most people are borrowing in the 
seven sort of percent up to about five percent interest rates, mm-hmm. but you have to be assessed at like seven and a quarter to seven and a half percent. So there is quite a like a, a bit of a buffer there. Yeah. But in terms of, uh, I think the dynamics of the market is quite different between Australia and America. I would say that where I prefer to in- invest would be like what you'd almost consider commutable distance to somewhere like New York or maybe mm-hmm. like San Francisco, something like this. And if you look at those really strong economic uh, parts of the country, I would imagine there that um, the property has been more resilient as opposed to if you were buying the more suburban kind of areas, are, I'm assuming, yeah. All right. So that would be kind of in line with what you did with the property in Sydney. It's like 30 minutes outside of downtown Sydney. Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. And you also, you mentioned something about being assessed at seven and you can get loans between three and 5%, but you have to be assessed at, at seven. What, what specifically does that mean? Okay. So what happens is um, the percentage that you, you know, repay is, you know, obviously based on the interest rate that you, you get the loan at. However, the regulators here want to make sure that when rates go up again, mm-hmm. uh, that people can continue to pay their mortgage. Uh. So they're assessing that, you know, you have to be able to meet the repayments at that much higher interest rate. Otherwise, the bank is not allowed to give you the loan. So they're basically qualifying you as a more promising borrower of money, right? Exactly. So there's a big buffer in there. Yeah. That's uh so I don't know if you guys have a similar thing uh, in place over there at the moment. This is relatively new in Australia that it's been buffered that much. Mm-hmm. And this has happened largely over the last 6 to 12 months. And they've also increased the minimum cost of living for everyone when they are assessed to get a mortgage here. So they're trying to make it more sturdy in case we do have a downturn in the future. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So I don't know anything about lending money. I actually, as of this week, just borrowed my first amount of money because I just wanted to learn more about how it all works. Um, So I'm getting, I think, similar to what you mentioned, like it's called a security backed loan. So it's against Mm -hmm. my my brokerage account. And I can get the money at, I can borrow at like 3.1%, which I I guess is pretty good. But all this this assessment and the the qualifying process of getting loans is still pretty new to me. So one thing Johnny and I are experimenting with now is peer-to-peer lending. And we're doing um, both through Peer Street and through Lending Club. And I Mm -hmm. guess it kind of goes in line with in Lending Club, you have grades of, of loans that are A through F, I think, is the, the worst one. So the F ones are, ba- are basically, they're, they're like 25% of those are getting are getting uh, defaulted on, whereas the A's yeah. only have like 2% are being defaulted on. So I guess that goes into the assessment. If, if people think, you know, you can, if rates go up to 7%, obviously, you're going to have a lot of defaults, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. So so where are you at today? So your first property was bought in 2012. You still own that property? I do, I do. And it's worth probably, so I bought it uh, just over two hundred thousand, and it's worth nearly four hundred thousand now. Jeez! Basically, uh, I was able to keep buying uh, more places since then. So I went to uh, after that an area that is not as sort of uh, well considered, if you will. Mm-hmm. And basically, I tried to get larger sort of land value properties. So I ended up buying three villas in one block, and they basically have like front and back gardens. One's a four bedroom, one's a three bedroom, one's a two bedroom, and um, basically the prices on those have almost uh, doubled now as well and I acquired those through early mid 2013 mm-hmm. so they're closer to an hour's commute to Sydney but uh, in Sydney terms that's actually still not 
that far mm-hmm. and they are near the train line so people can get to to work and everything easy enough so the idea is that we, i would still benefit from the economic strength of you know the jobs and everything in sydney but still getting good yields because prices rose very strongly through 2012 to 2014 here in mm-hmm. sydney and so basically i just wanted to try and get as much land value as i could uh, as opposed to buying apartments while still finding a high yield situation and to achieve that i needed to actually find properties that were uh, i guess had a higher risk factor associated in terms yeah. of the types of tenants that you'd get yeah so those are would you consider that those are an hour outside of Sydney and that you said they're like villas so it's I guess just kind of like a house yep would they would you say that the people that are renting there are commuting to Sydney each day or are they more like vacation houses for oh you said they're, they're not upper scale right no no so it's no the people there are all on income support okay so none of them I don't think any of those tenants there are actually working mm-hmm. so we have a pretty strong income support kind of set up in Australia under the government uh, however they are close enoughly positioned to Sydney that in time, I believe that, uh, you know, younger families and everything will, you know, into, end up taking over that area and it will get built out and become more upmarket, mm-hmm. if you will. So the idea is to benefit from what's, you know, considered here gentrification. Mm-hmm. So the area becomes much more upscale because it is still a commutable distance to Sydney. But traditionally, it's, it's considered to be like a relatively... Uh, you know, an area you'd, you'd prefer not to live in, let's say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of nice. The government's paying them and then they're paying you. So it's almost like the government's just sending you money. Pretty much. Exactly. <laughs> so that, that works nicely. And, you know, you know, it's, it's guaranteed income when it comes from the government. Right. The only downside of that is that government income doesn't increase very quickly. Right. In fact, you know, like uh, there's ongoing pressure to, to, you know, make sure that those payments don't really go up versus, mm-hmm. you know, with normal jobs, you've potentially yeah. got a little bit of wage inflation and that can help out with uh you know prices going up in time yeah Mm. so how many tenants do you have in total now through all your properties so i've got five properties at the moment and most of them uh, are family style dynamics living in there Mm -hmm. some of them are like uh, incorporating extended families as well so i think one of them i've got a mum, daughter and then three kids Mm -hmm. so there's a few situations like that but generally they're rented by by families yeah nice so give us an idea of what that takes on a regular basis to manage, including like, do you have to do actual maintenance yourself? Do you have property managers? How do you get the money or collect the rent and stuff like that? Property managers are pretty good in Australia. So there's plenty of them around. Um, I generally pay between four and six and a half percent of the, of the rent that I receive to my property managers and they collect all the rent. They organize all the maintenance and basically, you know, remarket it when tenants move out, mm-hmm. everything like that. So they, they really do everything. All they'll do is send me an email and say, hey, you know, do you sign off on us doing this, this you know, work on it? Do you want to adjust prices, etc.? if we're, you know, putting it back on the market to be rented, all that kind of thing. But I have a pretty low turnover of tenants. Most of them have been in there for most of the time that I've owned them. In fact, the first one, I've still got the very same tenants from mm-hmm. when I bought it. So the good thing is that even though prices are high here vacancy rates are very low in sydney probably in the two to five percent range normally probably closer to two percent so even if it's uh untenanted for say a month or two you'll get someone in pretty quick eventually 
Yeah, so that's nice. So you don't have any midnight phone calls to come over and fix the toilet or anything like that. <laughs> no, like if you managed it yourself, then you would be in for that. <laughs> and some people do do that. And it just depends how many properties you've got. Like if yeah. you want to do it for a living and you've got 30 or 40 properties, well, if you were to look at 4 to 6% on enough properties, you can do it for a living. But to me, I don't really want to be a handyman for a living and I don't see it as being scalable. So um, I'm pretty happy to, to pay someone else to, to take on that nightmare, yeah. Nice, yeah. That's definitely one of the challenges in in uh, Thailand is finding property managers. We can get into that in a bit, but you find in pretty much every small municipality or even neighborhood, you would have property managers that are easily accessible to find. So if you're going to go pick up properties, you know you can you can just turn and find a, a reliable property manager in that area. Yeah, definitely. They're everywhere. You know, they they're fighting for business in every suburb. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of them. And they're hungry. They'll undercut each other. Everything like that. Uh, they really like having properties, you know, under their rental books because it's like guaranteed income for them, mm-hmm. and it increases their business value. A real estate business in Australia is largely valued based on a multiple of their the rental roles, like mm-hmm. the rental income. So for them to have properties on their books that that they're renting out is a strong asset for them. Got it. And a lot of properties don't require too much maintenance. Like if you're lucky enough to have tenants that stay for a couple of years and the place isn't in bad shape to begin with mm-hmm. you know they, they might only make one or two you know maybe one or two calls a quarter or something for maintenance work and generally people pay their rent on time otherwise you know they get booted out so and, and they do it via electronic transfer so literally for a property manager often it's not much work at all of course there are obviously circumstances where it's a nightmare but most of the time it's pretty easy work for them so they're all fighting for the business yeah yeah so so going back to your first property and then how that led into the other properties you were able to get the first property by putting down 15% correct mm-hmm. and then right. and then so how does how do you jump into the next set of properties or maybe even not necessarily your position but for someone who's just getting started into property investing can they use the cash flow from that first property to then secure a loan for the second one and then third one or how does that work yeah so you'd revalue generally and use the equity so for the second one i did put down more cash that i had and then the third one that I, I finished up my cash and then for the fourth and fifth ones I revalued my existing properties and redrew some of the equity out so here you can typically uh, refinance and take out up to like a 95% lend level mm-hmm. now there will be mortgage insurance on that so really you can only refinance up to about 91 92% of the value but really that means you only need to hold about 8% of the equity in the property mm-hmm. and the rest of it can be financed. So let's say, you know, a property goes up like 10%, you can potentially refinance, take that cash out and buy another. So that is obviously being uh, a little bit more scrutinized now, now that you have to meet that tough assessment rate. Yeah. But in theory, if you've got good income, you can leverage your, your equity pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you learn this? There's a lot going on there kind of under the hood of and a lot of I think to the layman or someone who's not ever borrowed money or invested in property, it would seem like there's almost a certain amount of financial wizardry going on there. Is there an easy way for people to figure out how to do this, you know, how to take basically the first few steps in acquiring that property and then being able to leverage that to do the things that you just talked about? Is there books or or resources that you learn from? Yeah, there's, I guess, quite a lot of things. I'd say a lot of the international markets, you know, will be quite different to Mm -hmm. how it is set up in Australia. But 
Um, I, like a lot of Australian investors, read Steve McKnight's books, which is a famous Aussie guy. He acquired a couple hundred properties in, a, in just a couple of years. Wow. Um, and basically, yeah, he would buy stuff that was cash flow positive and then revalue it and then basically, you know, take out the equity and keep buying more. Mm-hmm. I think I learned at a young age that a big portion of it was really that uh, leverage is how you really get rich. Yeah. For example, you know, if you can, if you can get like a 7% or a 9% return as you might find in property or in like the S&P 500 long term, if you can borrow at say 3%, well, you're going to make quite a nice spread there. Yeah. So realistically, you know, if I could buy borrow a billion dollars tomorrow at 3% and then, you know, over long term, I'm making like 7% on it, I'm very happy collecting my 4%, right. of, you know, difference there. So it became like a situation of how can I achieve a sustainable amount of leverage and really build it out hugely without the risk of liquidations. And that's the issue with margin calls on shares. Mm-hmm. They've always got a huge liquidation risk against you. And, and I know that happened to a lot of people, you know, in the GFC and everything. So that was always a concern. But I find that property allows me to leverage very hard and keep leveraging. And then, you know, you only need a small percentage of growth on top of that to actually turn into to big dollars kind of thing. So what happens in a scenario? scenario that let's say Australia goes through a recession. If you have a lot of debt and a lot of leverage, then you're you're more exposed, right? Yep. As long as as long as your places stay v- occupied and the rents don't fall too much, you're okay because you can you can absorb a little bit of the short-term capital, you know, the appreciation or depreciation of properties assuming it's going to go back up and three or four years or whatever, right? Yep, exactly. So the thing is that um, here, commercial loans typically assessed every year. So if you're buying, you know, shops, offices, stuff like that, it's not always the case, but generally it's reassessed every year. But residential property, mm-hmm. they don't reassess you for the mortgage once you have it. Now, that is conditional on you actually, you know, meeting your, you know, repayments. Uh, that being said, they do have the ability to do margin calls. So if they, you know, want to mean that you need to put up a bigger deposit all of a sudden or get you to sell out, they can do it. But I think that the banks realize that it would be a dangerous precedent to start doing that because mm-hmm. it would cause for a lot of forced selling and they would potentially collapse the market. The banks here, we have like a four pillars style situation where the, the big lenders, they are actually um, you know listed on the stock exchange and are private companies. However, they are considered as like pillars of the economy by the government and there is like an implied government guarantee, if you will, that they won't go under. So there is a bit of government manipulation in this scenario and I think that they realized that they would effectively wipe out a lot of the the country's wealth if they were to you know go ahead and, and start margin calling people's properties and causing forced sales because then it would be a uh, you know a flow-on effect to everyone's position yeah sure yeah so so you're currently at five properties what's your next goals do you want to be like that guy what was his name that wrote the book uh, Steve McKnight Steve McKnight <laughs> it, it'd, be, it'd be nice to get there yeah. um, I got big goals I want to try and get to a hundred over the over the coming years so i mean it's going to take a while i do also want to do some investing potentially uh you know over in the us and in the uk property wise as well i do intend to keep building like a 
financial portfolio on the side like i do still do a bit of uh you know stock trading and investing and everything as well but that's more just with like a side piece of liquidity that i keep i believe you do need to keep a little bit of liquidity in case you know i have vacancies or if i need to do some renovation work Mm -hmm. so i I still do that i'm mainly in dividend shares on the side uh, but of course you know what you should be in is very relative to uh, you know, what your risk profile is. But predominantly, I do intend to keep building my wealth in that space and uh, over the next couple of years, um, hope to keep adding to it, yeah. Very nice, man. And what about your, how how can you borrow money now? Is it the same, you said the first property you got was at 5%. Is that more or less the same as where you can borrow today? Uh, yeah, so it's actually lower. The rates have been going down here. At the moment, you can probably get mortgages between about 37 and 4.5% pretty easily. Mm-hmm. If you want to go more in like the subprime style, then you can obviously pay more than that and you'd find more flexible lenders. But if you're going with prime banks, then those rates are still applicable. So now the thing is though, the assessment rates have gone up. The idea is that, you know, I'll need to bring up a huge amount of income because I've got the equity sitting there, but to keep borrowing and keep meeting the assessment rates, mm-hmm. that's that's the challenge right now for me and for most investors. I've um, repositioned what I do in my day job now as well. So obviously I have a good amount of equity and I could potentially go and live in Asia or something like that, which was one of my first kind of goals. Mm-hmm. But now I'm sort of hungrier for success. I used to be a financial advisor mm-hmm. and now I've moved across to become like a full-time mortgage broker. So I've got, uh, I'm set up under my own business structure. Mm-hmm. So the idea being from here that I can build strong financials that I can actually use to keep building my portfolio. Mm-hmm. And obviously being in this position, I have a very good position to actually be able to borrow more money because I know the exact best way to position everything with the yep. lenders to, to get it done. Good stuff. Good strategy. So you got five properties now. Take us through how you'll find and borrow for property number six. Do you have a, a certain neighborhood that you're looking at or a certain yield that you have to you have to get to achieve when uh, vetting a property? Yeah, so I think there's like a, a balance between what I like is a property that is what I yeah, consider a commutable distance to a, like a financial center. And that being said, that's, that's the key thing I look for in terms of something that's going to give me capital gains over mm-hmm. the long term. But in terms of it being an, an asset that I can continue to you know, hold in my portfolio and uh, you know, allow me to, to be sustainable, I need something that is going to yield well. So I tend to look for something that's not too far from a financial hub with a, a key part of that being, being yield. And I prefer to have uh, as much land value as I can. Mm-hmm. So typically yield and land value don't necessarily go together that well. So you've got to strike the right balance. But right. over time, the more land you've owned, that's appreciated much more than buying, say, small studios and that kind of thing in Sydney mm-hmm. and, and I guess across Australia as well. And that's probably because density is becoming more more of a real issue, I guess, across the country here is more, you know, skyscrapers are going up and they're just building, you know, hundreds of apartments. And of course, that is potentially the future of living. And I mean, look at a lot of the major kind of centers around the world and a lot of people just live in apartments. But, you know, if you look at what houses are worth in those areas, yeah. you know, people will, will, they'll spend a fortune to have that land value. So it's about striking that balance. I'm not opposed to apartments, but I'm finding there's a couple of sweet spots in potential like small villas again two three bedroom kind of situations and uh 
or the other good play at the moment here houses with a, a detached granny flat on the back which can really increase your yield so there's a few different things that i'll be looking at the thing is it's quite a fluent market if you will so everything does change day to day and a lot of it is the just the deal that you can find at the time if you can find a motivated vendor mm-hmm. and just line it up but yeah generally i'll try and narrow down something that's what i'd consider in a commutable you know to city location good yield and uh, and basically um, doesn't have too many issues that I have to deal with kind of thing. Really nice. Yeah, I heard some scary, scary statistics about the amount of people that are moving to big cities in Asia Pacific region. It's like a mm-hmm. billion, one billion more people in 10 years will be living in, in the, the top like 20 cities in Asia Pacific. Mm-hmm. So it's a big, uh, I guess, urbanization. Um, I don't think you can lose too much in, in investing in, in any city or around any of the big cities in Asia. It's just a massive emerging middle class and lots of people moving into the cities from from the uh, rural areas, especially in Asia. So it's crazy. Definitely. I know what you mean. Yeah, I was just in Hong Kong and the amount of people that are in that area of Hong Kong to the Guangdong province, mm-hmm. it, which is like comprised of Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Dongguan, it's like over 100 million people already. It's like the size of the state of Missouri in the US or I don't know in Australia, but it's, it's a very small area, over 100 million people there already. It's just right. insane. Um, and the property prices all over the all over Asia have just been exploding. So interesting yeah. stuff, man. Great uh, perspective. You'll, you'll definitely have to write a book if you haven't yet. At some point, a lot of what you're doing reminds me of one of our favorite books, which was Rich Dad Poor Dad. Did you ever read that? Definitely. That's actually the thing that got me started right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So I agree. So you, you probably. What, what, when did you read that book? Actually, you have any I idea? Think I was pr- probably seventeen. Okay. Maybe? Yeah. So I was gonna say I was probably 19, 19 when I read it. We read it when we were in college, and it was like one person read it and then passed it around to forty people, and then we all like thought this was you know, the easiest thing to do. And of course, none of us ended up investing in property for probably another 10 years, but it really opens up your way of thinking uh, on how to use leverage and get into cash flowing opportunities. So it's really good to hear your story because there's so many parallels in that approach, but you actually went out and did it, which is, is great to hear. Oh, cheers, man. Appreciate it. And yeah, I'd love to know more about you know what you're doing at the moment could you tell me i guess uh, in a bit more detail about you know how your properties are going and your strategy over there yeah so i'm not nearly as as uh, much of an expert as you or as organized as you so it's been good to to hear a little bit more of how you you manage it my investments in thailand um i would say i got started there because i ended up in a city called chiang mai and i just fell in love with it Mm -hmm. and a couple of things that really drew me to investing in thailand was coming from the u.s you have these ridiculous carry costs on properties you have property tax which is between like one and two percent of the value of the prop that just goes straight away to the government doesn't matter if you ever step foot in the on the property at all and then you if you own a condo the hoa fees are absolutely absurd uh i know somebody owns a condo in miami he's paying three thousand dollars a month in homeowner a month in homeowners association right i mean it's a nice apartment don't get me wrong but the carrying costs and then you got insurance for you know for hurricanes and stuff maintenance it's you can basically not make it's like zero yields you're just hoping for capital appreciation so when i got to thailand i was looking at these properties and you know the construction is not not quite as good but they the carrying cost is essentially zero so i was looking at this 
condo that was going up in Chiang Mai. It was pre-construction and all they had was a little rendering, a 3D rendering, but the, the units were selling for like, I don't know, 75,000 or 80,000, like 45 square meter condos. But the carrying mm-hmm. cost was essentially zero. That my The homeowners association costs are only like $25 a month and there's mm-hmm. zero property tax. So if I leave the, and the, no insurance, no maintenance. So if I leave the condo for the entire year, it costs me about $300. So I was like, okay, it's almost zero risk, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I picked one up. It was like the first thing I've ever actually purchased that I own. So and that was before I, I really had any any money or much income. This goes back to 2011. Mm-hmm. And as I saw the place getting built and realized that it was going to be a, what I thought a good opportunity to rent to a lot of foreigners and stuff, mm-hmm. I purchased another one. And I only had to put down like 10%. So we're talking like seven or eight eight grand on a property. And mm-hmm. I figured, <laughs> I was basically hoping that I had money by the time they were finished, right? Which ended up being the case. So I kind of lucked out with that. Yeah. So they, they got finished. I loved it. I liked the whole experience of owning the property and not really having any, any overhead. I was immediately able to rent them out for almost about a 10% yield. So they cost me about 80K and then I could rent them for about five or $600 a month, right? So yeah, wow. it ended up being close to 10%. And then you have almost no no maintenance, no overhead, no carry costs. So the yields I thought were pretty good. So I got them pre-construction. So I, I learned a lot through buying pre-construction because you kind of get a picture in your head of what the unit's going to be like, but you don't realize some things. Like one big things I learned was don't buy a property or a condo next to an elevator because every time the elevator comes up, you hear ding, ding, you hear people unloading stuff, groceries, bottles, dinging all over the place. So there's there's a couple of like tricks like that that I learned to to help vet pre-construction properties better. So then I went down to Phuket. I probably looked at over a hundred buildings, I would say, in between Bangkok, Chiang Mai, Phuket, and Koh Samui, which is a, a popular island I'm sure you know of off mm-hmm. the coast. And in Phuket, I looked at I looked at a lot. I really like the idea of Phuket because if you draw a a circle around Phuket of where you can fly from in, in five hours directly mm-hmm. into Phuket, you hit these major, major, you know, uh, you know, popu- population hubs, right? All over China, mm-hmm. all over India, Indonesia. Uh, and a lot of the places like in India and China, they don't really have good beaches. Mm-hmm. So if you want to go to a nice beach, at any point in the year, you know, Phuket, and you can fly directly into Phuket, whereas Samui, you have to, you have to connect always, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for most of the major destinations. So I really like the idea of Phuket and I got a place down there pre-construction. And so I got kind of screwed on that one in the sense that I was verbally guaranteed a sea view, which is why I bought on the fifth floor because you could have bought on the second, third or fourth floor so much cheaper. But I didn't really do any like thorough due diligence. I didn't get that in writing or whatever. And sure enough, when it just got finished last year, I went down and looked at it. Not a sea view at all. You can't even see a sliver of the ocean and had Mm. no recourse. My only recourse is I could try to take it to court and maybe get my money back, but I would lose, you know, money with lawyers and all that other stuff. So there's a few things I learned there. So the strategy was in Chiang Mai, which was where I owned three properties, I can get to eight, nine, 10% yield. But the problem is there's no property managers, right? So, Mm. and there's not a lot of people up there that speak English. So I spent quite a bit of time up there and I found a girl that just graduated college that was really motivated and didn't have any experience in property management, but she's pretty much my link up there. So she'll, she has a, she collects the money. And if anything's needed to get done on the apartments, she has good relationships with the receptionist and the kind of the property, the handyman's on the properties. So she can go mm-hmm. and get that stuff done. She collects the money and then just sends to me. It's kind of a, mm-hmm. um, a patchwork of a, a property management deal. But anyways, they're, they're kind of 
they're out of sight, out of mind. There's really no problems with the tenants and stuff. And then I went down. So I own now two properties in Phuket. One's still pre-construction. will be done in 2019. And the other one is, is now finished. So the reason I got these were because they're investment specific properties where when you buy the property, you put that property up into a rental management pool. So mm-hmm. it's actually run as a hotel, right? Um, mm-hmm. So both of them are in resorts. One of them's a two bedroom. The other one's like a standard studio, uh, almost like a standard hotel room. Mm-hmm. So you, you're actually kind of buying a hotel room and then they'll guarantee you a return. I think my specific one's like 7% for four years. So, but they also bake that into the buy price, right? So, you know, they know what they're doing a lot more than, than I know what I'm doing. But yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I did a lot of these more as I'm not skilled. I'm not experienced in, in property investing. So I wanted to buy a few properties that I thought I was getting a good deal on by purchasing pre-construction and mm-hmm. learn through the process of the, you know, the, the, the two sides. So in Phuket, you have like these properties that are specifically in an investment pool, you're basically buying a hotel room. So learn from that, that experience compared to buying a prop, the properties up in Chiang Mai in the North, which, you know, I'm, I'm really the landlord and I have someone on the ground that's kind of maintaining them and seeing what the different yields are like, seeing what the experience is like. The ones in Phuket, I can only use for two weeks of the year. So you buy it, but like you have no really no right to use it. And you yep. can, by the way, you can use them the two shittiest months of the year, which is monsoon season. Yeah, right. So yeah, man, I don't know. Um, it's very new to me. There's been a lot of, it's been a huge learning experience. And I mean, I really haven't made any money off them yet because the ones up in North just started getting rented and the ones in Phuket haven't been finished yet. So uh, there's, there's going to be a lot more learning involved. It'll definitely be nice once they start cash flowing because I've been out of pocket for them for so long now. Yeah. I, I know you, we were going to talk about property ownership. So like in Australia, what, what is that set up like Australian citizens? So you can own the land, I would assume in, in your name as well. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it's full ownership and there's very, you know, a lot of law protects you as as the owner if someone stops paying rent and everything eventually you get like a sheriff to evict to them it can mm-hmm. be a bit of a process but realistically you know you do have pretty strong rights in your favor and there's not much that people can do to kind of uh you know work against that so that's one i guess really strong benefit of it but i understand i think in thailand you can only own condominium apartments and mm-hmm. i think it has to be only if you only if a percentage of the building is already sold to foreigners or yeah. something like that yeah yeah you know as much as me <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's 40 in new condo buildings or actually any condo buildings but i guess i've only looked at new ones it's 49 percent of the units can be owned free and clear in a foreigner's name it's called a foreign freehold mm-hmm. and then the other 51 percent can either be a thai freehold which means if you're a Thai citizen, you can own it as a freehold in your name, or it has to be structured as a leasehold, which is essentially getting a long-term lease off the developer who in turn has a long-term lease of the land from the government. And the the third way you can do it is set up a Thai company, and then you can own it as a freehold through the Thai company. So that's that's a little bit more... So many people do it that way, right? So I actually own two of my properties in that manner, only because I wanted these two specific units and I couldn't acquire 
acquire them as a freehold. Otherwise, I would always pay the additional just to acquire it as a freehold. So three of the five properties I own as a foreign freehold. And more the reason behind that than anything is because when you go to sell the property, if it's if it's a leasehold or you own it through a Thai company, it makes it much, much more difficult to sell it to a foreigner, which is probably who you're going to be selling it to. Like the buildings that I'm in, there's good appreciation on the property. It's probably going to be getting sold to a foreigner. So I just wanted to make that process as simple as possible. And if you have to pay a five or 10% premium on the property to do it, I, I think it's kind of worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that to be an interesting part of the, I guess, ownership experience in that, um, like, I know that the Thai law and everything very much tends to favor the locals. And so I was always a bit unsure as to what if you did have tenants, right? And they just like, you know, stopped paying and you couldn't get rid of them. Or if like a Thai person just came in and, and staked their claim on your property saying like, oh, you know, the transfer wasn't wasn't legal and, you know, we're taking it back now. Like, do you, you feel very confident in the ownership of these? And like how, you know, could you talk me through, I guess, you know, how you believe that you're protected under the law there? <laughs> sure. And, it, and, and I, I'm not that confident. And... I wouldn't, I would say I've, I've tried to do things as, as correctly as possible, but it's still very difficult. And I know people that have gotten totally screwed in Thailand, buying in areas that are much more controlled by say like the mafia, like the little islands, Kotal, even Samui. Those are, those are not areas I would invest. I think if you go into Bangkok, Phuket is much more safe now. And then Chiang Mai in the north is I think touch wood is about as, as good as it'll get. So I have had one tenant that has basically stopped paying rent. Or it's, you know, it's the typical, he's three months or three weeks late this month and then six weeks late the next month and back and forth and back and forth. It's not a Thai guy, it's a Japanese guy. So finally, I just, I wrote, I had the girl that's managing the property write him and say, you know, if if, uh, if you can't catch up on rent by the end of this month, you know, you'll we'll evict you. And I don't even know what that process would look like. Luckily, the girl that works for me her dad is pretty high up in the police in Chiang Mai. So I've always right. just kind of assumed that that card was in my back pocket. I have no idea how it would actually transpire in my situation or in anyone else's situation. I just feel like the people in Thailand are good. So like like things would just work <laughs> out magically. And then, you know, the, the scarier part for me is more the ownership of the Thai company and the, the two condos that are in the Thai company. So I had, <laughs> I have this lawyer in Chiang Mai who I'm, I also became quite good friends with. And so she set everything up, she set up the Thai company. She got the companies transferred into that company. But in order to move companies, uh, properties into a company, the company has to be in the Thai person's name. As soon as they transfer you the voting rights of that company, that company is basically sealed. It's like you can't move any more assets. So if you wanted to, if you had one Thai company and you wanted to continuously acquire more properties and put it into that company, you would have to keep that in the Thai person's name or they would maintain the voting rights while you were doing that. Because once you transfer it, then that pretty much is a static company. You can't move, right? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so she basically went to Europe while the properties were in her name and just went off the grid for three months. No one could reach her. I couldn't get a hold of her. The the girl that I know and that's managing the properties couldn't get a hold of her. And I'm like, well, like what happens if she's gone or she tries to sell these properties or, you know, God forbid something happened to her. And, you know, I don't, I, I have no idea what I would have done. I just, you know, I just guess I assumed everything would work out. And to this day, I just emailed her. She, so she came back on the grid, was like, oh yeah, I was just in Europe, like not checking emails. I'm like, oh, oh, oh great. Oh, by the way, um, you're still in control of my Thai company that you set up. Yeah, so she's back. But I emailed her the other day. I'm like, who, you know, who owns a company? She's like, 
I own 51%, you own 49%, but you have the voting rights. I'm like, oh, okay, well, like, what's that mean? And she hasn't responded. So there's still a lot of holes <laughs> in this whole thing. If Yeah, I would say for anyone who is looking to buy property in this is specifically in Thailand. I still am very bullish on the Thai market, by the way, because I think I think the bot can only get stronger. Like when you can go out in Thailand and, and buy a meal for under basically like one Australian dollar, it just it can't get mm-hmm. that much cheaper, right? It's everyone yeah. loves Thailand. There's money flooding in from all areas. The places I bought this, I was buying them for about. 2000 us per square foot like mm-hmm. pre-construction i think that's a pretty good price um you know if you go you go of course to like hong kong or singapore it can be you know 10,000 10,000 a, a square foot or more so i think 2000 is pretty good for new properties um i definitely feel like the pr- the value of these properties ha- can only go up like you know $80,000 for these condos is is nothing when you can you can get a 10% yield on them that's my that's mm. my opinion so I, i'm very bullish on the Thai market i don't worry about the political stuff that's going on of course that could always come up and bite you you never have any idea uh how it's going to work out but i i don't really worry about that yeah i don't know i mean and and in terms of like a, people say phuket's in a bubble but any foreigner who's buying there it's it's very difficult to get loans you can't get loans through a Thai bank and it's hard to get a loan through your your country or your bank mm. back in back in your home to buy a property abroad so it's really a cash market so i don't really think it's a bubble but i don't know you know it's i'll have some such a better picture of how this all works out in a year because all of these properties now are just starting to get rented out and the the picture of the whole process is getting a lot more clear to me so it's good to hear your experience obviously i think the laws in australia are a lot more favorable especially that, that since you're an australian citizen but it's good to hear your experience of how you've already been through the whole process of acquiring the properties, renting them out, getting the cash flow from it, and, and continue to grow that experience where I'm much more on the, the beginning side of the, of the whole process. Yeah. One other thing I want to ask about as well is, uh, you know how you mentioned the pretty much zero carrying cost. Mm-hmm. You know, over here, like I think similar to the home ownership, we have what's called like strata cost, and that's used to like, you know, pay for lifts, pay for the maintenance of the swimming pool, mm-hmm. and they keep some money in reserve in case the building needs like, you know, um, structural work or anything like that. I guess because you don't have any of those costs, and also I should say it also covers insurance if there was to be, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of natural disaster or something. So, as you have no cost there, would you know it would be like a special levy, would it, if something was required to be done, or how does that work? Well, you you call them strata costs. Is that what you just called it? Yeah, that's it's like a, a strata committee. So it's a separate company that is responsible for the basically the um, the, the ongoing maintenance of mm-hmm. all the facilities of the building mm-hmm. and they keep money also in reserve in case the building needs like uh, you know structural work or anything like that on it yeah yeah so that so that's a monthly cost to you as a owner yeah quarterly quarterly, quarterly okay yeah yeah so I think we typically call that homeowners association or homeowners mm-hmm. fees uh, same type of thing like in the US and in Thailand I don't know if there was a major structural event how it would be handled I always assumed it was just through our, our homeowners fees it's just that the the labor cost especially in the north like in Chiang Mai are so low uh, for instance there's a full-time property management guy like a full-time handyman at our condo mm-hmm. who anything you need like you know you need something hung he'll come up and hang it you have a, a crack in the floorboards he'll come up and fix it there's and you know, he takes care of the pool all the, the landscaping so they make nine thousand baht a month which is basically three hundred dollars a month right mm. so just and then of course we have receptionist and the receptionist is going to make about the same thing so you're talking about 
two full-time people at $300 a piece, that's, you know, 600 bucks compared to say Miami to have the full-time receptionist is going to be five grand and mm-hmm. a handyman's going to be five, it's 10 grand, you know? So the costs are just so low that the actual, you know, maintenance fees of the building, the condo, the condo, the property itself are just so low that, you know, you have how many, how many units in the, I want to say it's like maybe 60 units in the building. Everyone's paying like 25 bucks a piece. I don't even know what that number is. What is that? Like thir- 33 grand, four grand or something a month goes into the condo. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. But I mean, of course, if the elevator breaks, that's not going to cover it. Right. So I don't know. You know, it's another thing that someone that had been into property a little bit more than me could probably would want to figure out in the due diligence of something I, I just overlooked. But I'll get an answer on that. It'll be interesting to follow up. I just assumed it was always covered in, in the homeowners association fees. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I guess the other thing is just, uh, you know, to find out a bit more about what your long-term kind of game plans are from here. Yeah, I think I'm done investing in, in property, uh, at least in Thailand, because my lifestyle is so remote. I just don't like having the headache of, you know, worrying about a property in Chiang Mai that's that's really not bringing in that much relative money. If I do uh, more property investing, I think I'll try to do larger chunks. I buy, try to acquire, you know, a half million dollar place that has substantial income that is a little worth a little bit more mind share when you own five properties and the, you know the max they're really going to bring them is 500 a piece mm-hmm. it's you know it's a, it's a still substantial revenue but i think i'd rather have that all in one unit say a one that's bringing in $2,500 a piece instead of five that are bringing in 500 if it was my full-time job i think you know the more you can diversify and stuff is better but it's more of like a headache right now that I just, I look at it as more as a learning experience, learn how to property invest and learn different types of property investments uh, versus something that's a long-term growth strategy for me. So I would say I'm done investing in Thailand. The next property I acquire will probably be something I want to, you know, have as a, as a permanent residence. And yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, are you living in, in one of the places you bought or like, where do you live right now? No, I actually rent where I live because, uh, there's two different things here. So if you live in a place and then you sell it later, you get a concession on the capital gains you'd pay. Okay. Uh, but if you, if it's an investment and you sell it later, you pay full tax on that. I mean, there can be concessions, but you do, uh, more, more likely in for more tax. However, if you rent a place that you live in and then you own somewhere else that you rent out, you actually get a tax benefit in that all the maintenance costs of yeah. your properties you're renting out are tax deductions because they're like business expenses, right? Mm-hmm. But if you own a house and all the maintenance costs you have to spend, they're just like lifestyle costs. So you can't deduct it. Right. So there's al- there's almost like an arbitrage to be had in that if you rent where you live and then you own elsewhere and rent that out, that actually uh, gives you like a tax benefit. And I prefer to move around quite a lot anyway. Yeah. Um, so it works well for me. And when you say your next one might be a residence, where would you buy? Well, I don't know where I want to live. <laughs> That's the problem, <laughs> man. I keep going places and after a month I'm bored and, and I don't want to stay there any longer. I, I like, um, long term, I lo- would like to live in a place like Colorado in the mountains somewhere or maybe in the in like the west coast of the US on the beach. But I'm just so turned off of investing in the US where I have to pay two percent or one or two percent in, in property taxes and crazy, crazy maintenance fees and carry costs to hold the property. Now that I've invested in Thailand where I can leave for a year and I have five properties and it doesn't 
you know, it's nothing really to, to, to carry those properties for, you know, so I think it'll be hard to go and buy in a place where you have property tax. So I got no idea, man. I don't know. Probably US, Vancouver, something like that. Some place will, will feel like home at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and where, where are you living at the moment and where are you off to next? I'm in Singapore. I'm heading to Europe for the next probably two months for a little bit of the end of the summer. And then I'm going to go, um, I'm going to go down to the Caribbean for a bit and do some sailing with my buddy. He just sold his business and bought a catamaran. So I figured that would be a good escape for a bit. Definitely. That's it's quite a lifestyle. Very yeah, nice. Man. I also wanted to ask you, do you do any other type of property investing? Like, do you, Have you ever invested in any REITs or anything like that? Um, I actually haven't, but one of my uh, closest friends, he's big in that space. He was... Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, sort of a manager uh, for an equities company doing like analysis work on that. And there is money to be made there. Mm -hmm. Australian REITs are not especially cheap at the moment, but they've had a huge run over the last couple of years. I do find that, you know, there is definitely good money to be made in that. And a lot of the ones here, they have some inbuilt uh, leverage uh, into them. So that can work, but you can't really leverage it as hard as you can if you were to go with direct assets. Mm-hmm. But I think that there is definitely money to be made in that space. I think I heard on one of the other episodes you were investing in Singapore REITs or mm-hmm. some other ones. Is that right? Yeah. So I've invested in a few different Singapore REITs. They yield about 7% current. I just invested in... So we had Ben Miller on, who's the CEO of Fundrise. So I invested in theirs. There's a, they're basically a REIT they call it an e-REIT electronic REIT uh, so it's it's almost like a, it's not publicly traded right so it's it's kind of a private REIT and that that's yielding 8% right now and then i just bought a company called Senior Property Housing, which is a REIT in the US. They own, oh gosh, like hundreds and hundreds of senior care facilities in the USA. Uh, uh-huh. And that's yielding like seven and a half percent. And I think that one's really interesting because I don't really want to be associated with senior housing care. It's just kind of like a, like a I don't know, it's just boring, right? Or something I don't want to ever picture myself in. But, but you know, we have the baby boomers in the US and, and uh, they're all getting, they're all retiring and getting older. So I, I can't see that market going anywhere but up in the future. So that's an interesting one. But I'm still, you know, we're still comparing and contrasting the benefits of investing in REITs compared to investment properties. And while it's, you know, on paper, you can kind of make cases for it. It's still, it still really feels different. When you invest in REITs, although you're kind of technically owning a property, you don't really own that property in a sense, right? You can't go touch it. When you own a, an investment property, a physical property, like it's there, you know, it's there. The wind blows, it's still there. A tenant comes in, a tenant leaves. Like it's a, a physical asset and there's something much more assuring about ownership in that in, in some way. Yeah, I definitely know what you mean. And I think, you know, that is a bit of a, a cult amongst people, I guess, mm-hmm. especially older age groups where you know it's like it's in the ground you can see it you can drive past it and and look at it you know all that kind of thing and uh, i guess you do avoid some of the management costs that uh, are potentially associated with rates but that being said like rates do give you potential like excellent exposure and like that senior play i think um there's definitely money to be made in that that's like an emerging uh, theme in the australian market mm-hmm. as well we've very much got an aging population and when i was holding those small cap stocks before i actually heard quite a lot in the healthcare and insurance kind of space and that was quite profitable of course that's boomed a lot over the last couple of years but definitely that's an emerging theme here as well and i think there is going to be a lot of money to be made in that and even though it's not glamorous you know making money certainly is glamorous so um (laughs) right well said so jp i think we should get ready to wrap up i know you're tight on time um do you have any other suggestions for people who are listening and want to 
maybe take their first stab at an investment property. I think they, you know, they can learn a lot from just your experience and what you shared with us on the episode today. Do you have any other advice in terms of like books or, or areas that they can find out more information if they might want to get started and, and try a property investment? Yeah, I would say one of the key things is actually to play in a market close to your home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as much as you might look at, uh, I mean, obviously you lived in, in Thailand for a while and you obviously became quite familiar with that. So that's relevant in that regard. But if someone's from, you know, other side of the world, I don't know if I would be suggesting they jump into the Australian market just mm-hmm. because it's, you know, it's so foreign to them. And, and it's almost like a two tier situation a lot of times where, you know, you might just end up way overpaying because you're not really that familiar with it. I tend to find that most people make the best property investments if they buy, you know, something they're quite familiar with. It doesn't necessarily have to be like two streets away from where you live. But, you know, within the region of the country you live in, potentially, and over over time, I would say the key factors are, you know, you want it to be like a situation where there's scarcity. So, you know, where there is a lot more demand than there is sort of supply and where incomes have the potential to increase. And if you look at those two factors, perhaps something like New York is case in point. That's when you can have prices that are really, really going to go up over the long term because people are going to earn more. They can afford to spend more. Mm-hmm. And there's just not much space to, to fit the amount of demand in. So I think those are going to be the themes that, that's going to you know really make people money over the long term. And other than that, you know, try and look in, I guess, your local country, look at the cities that where the, the economic growth is and where the money is, try and find the scarcity kind of situations. And that's perhaps where you should be playing. I think that's really good advice. And we'll try to document those specific steps and considerations for the listeners in the show notes. So thanks for sharing that. And for any other listeners, if you have any other specific questions about uh, JP's investments or anything on my Thai stuff, although I don't have as good answers as JP, feel free to leave those in the boss lounge uh, or in the show notes. And between the two of us, we'll try to get answers back to anyone who's got questions. And also be sure to check out JP's podcast, the Australian Property Podcast. Uh, you can get that on iTunes and we'll also leave a link to that in the show notes. So JP, thanks, man. This has been a lot of fun and such great advice and, and knowledge share. So appreciate you coming on the show and, and speaking with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, everyone else look forward to another episode of Invest Like a Boss next week. Catch you later. Man, that was a great episode. I learned so much about using leverage to really be able to get rich, uh, investing in real estate, as well as kind of the pitfalls to avoid. And the things that I, you know, Sam openly shared, I really, really appreciate that. A lot of people would not even want to talk about or share things like that, especially because right now it's still in the beginning. So follow along the journey. Uh, Sam's going to be updating us on his property uh, investments over this next year. And I have a feeling that it's either going to really pay off or it's going to be a big lesson learned. So either way, it's it's something really interesting for all of us that are not spending our money in the game to be able to learn from still as well. So I want to give a big shout out to everyone who's been leaving reviews on the iTunes store. Uh, in Australia, we have BJ Baker 85 Great stuff. Just started listening. Uh, great stuff to hear about different investment vehicles. Keep up the great work. We have X Hot Bun X from the USA. Awesome podcast for exploring a bunch of different investment options. Great content and, de- and detail in the podcast and love how they bring these experts on to interview. Many of these experts mention minor details, which if you pick up are immense value in terms of thinking and possibly new investment ideas. And last but not least, we have Haja something 
from United Kingdom. I think they just tapped a bunch of letters. Uh, easy to digest and investment advice. I listen to a lot of business-related podcasts, and this is honestly one of the better ones. They present detailed investing advice in a casual and easy-to-digest way. I love the variety of guests, and I always look forward to the next episode. Keep up the good work, guys. So thank you to the three of you, but also everyone else who has been leaving reviews. We now have 51 reviews and only 14 episodes, so this is amazing. Let's keep this up. We still have a few weeks to get on the new and noteworthy section of the iTunes store, so really help us get there by sharing this podcast, subscribing, telling your friends, and leaving these reviews. Next week, we're going to be giving away another $25 Amazon gift card. So if you've left a review or if you plan on uh, leaving one, go to investlikeaboss.com, click on bonus, and there is going to be instructions on how to enter to win. And best news is once you enter once, you get into the drawing for the next 12 months. So you have 12 chances to win, really, really high chances. Thank you guys so much and see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.